Michael Osterlink here. I'm with Dan Grazier. He's a Jack Shannon Fellow at the Project on Government Oversight. How you doing, Dan? I'm doing very well, Michael. How about yourself? Fantastic. Happy Monday to you. Yes, yes. <laughs> it was a lovely Monday here in Washington, D.C. It is. Uh, we're late April 2016. And today we're going to talk about the F-35, the Joint Strike Fighter. Um, the good, bad, and the ugly. Uh, very interested from a taxpayer perspective in general and a conservative perspective in particular. But before we get into the F-35, a little bit about yourself, your background? Uh, well, my, my background is I was a journalist, a television journalist out of college, and then the war started, and I decided that uh, I'd better, uh, I, I better do, my, do my part, so I joined the Marine Corps and uh, became an officer, a, a tank officer specifically in the Marine Corps. Did a tour in, in Iraq in 2007 and a tour in Afghanistan in 2013. And hugely enjoyed myself, but I learned a whole bunch uh, during my time in the Marine Corps, and so that kind of led me towards the towards the John Boyd style military reform movement mm -hmm. while I was still in the service. And then when I made the decision to get out, this opportunity here at the Project on Government Oversight, which kind of has its origins in the John Boyd community, uh, was available, and I jumped on it. Well, thank you for your service. And uh, actually now, before we get into the F-35, we have to now talk about the John Boyd uh, perspective on military reform. Can you say a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, John Boyd-style military reform, it kind of has, it really started in the, in the 1970s and, and really kind of reached its peak in the 1980s. Uh, John Boyd was the, the legendary Air Force fighter pilot, uh, the best fighter pilot ever in the Air Force. And he came up with all kinds of innovations while he was still in the service, including the energy maneuverability theory that he worked out with Tom Christie uh, in the 1960s, which came up with a very precise way to measure aircraft performance. And so now the energy maneuverability is used as the basis for uh, fighter aircraft in particular design. And, and then when he retired from the, from the Air Force in the, in the mid-1970s, he uh, developed a whole lot of uh, theories about, uh, like general theories about warfare, uh, and, but he also had a lot of really good ideas about how the military should be structured and organized and how it should operate. And, but the basic tenet of John Boyd military reform is the proper ordering of priorities, and that is people, ideas, hardware, in that order. And unfortunately, things are often flipped here in Washington, where all the focus is on hardware. And when, but when you do that and you have the priorities backwards, then you create the wrong weapon systems. And then because you've spent so much money on them, you're stuck with them, which then dictates the way you operate, which then also dictates the people you bring into the service. And those might not necessarily be the right ones. Great segue to the F-35. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so what is the Joint Strike Fighter? So the Joint Strike Fighter, the, the program has its origins way back in the, 19, in the, in the 1990s. And it was designed to be all things to all people. And so it's a, uh, it's not just a fighter plane, it's, it was uh, created to replace a whole bunch of aircraft in the, in the inventory for both the, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marine Corps. And it's designed to, to be a fighter plane, it's designed to be a deep, strike, uh, a deep strike bomber, it's designed to be a close air support uh, platform, uh, and so as a result it is the eponymous jack-of-all-trades, master of none. So when was the uh, first F-35 available for combat? Well, 
That is kind of an interesting question, <laughs> and I will I will answer it this way. So the the my my beloved United States Marine Corps declared its version of the F thirty five combat capable at the end of July of 2015. Now, as we as we now know, based on a report from the Pentagon's testing agency, the Director of Operational Test and Evaluation, that that declaration was, well, to put it politely, it was premature. Uh, the, the F-35 has a number of deficiencies uh, that makes it uh, unsuitable for combat at this point. And in fact, in the report, the the DOT and E essentially said that should the F-35 find itself in a contested environment, it would uh, need to essentially run away and uh, be reinforced by other aircraft. When was it supposed to, in, in its three variations, and maybe we should talk about the three variations, um, when was it supposed to be combat available, combat ready? Because we're now in 2016. We are in 2016 now. I know that... I'm kind of drawing a blank on the date on this one. Uh, I know that it was, it's been pushed back a couple times over the years. I want to say it was around 2010, 2011 timeframe originally, but now the, and when the, when the, the entire F-35 program was re-baselined back in 2011, there was a provision in, in all of that that, that made the services announce their dates when they expected to declare IOC or uh, initial operational capability. And that's where the, the dates, like the, the mid-2015 date for the Marine Corps, and then it's 2016 for the Air Force, and 2018, if I remember correctly, for, for the Navy, for their different variants. Uh, but to answer your question about the different variants, there are three different variants of the F-35, and this is one of the big problems on a conceptual basis with the with the whole program. So there's the the F-35 Alpha, which is the Air Force variant. It's conventional takeoff, conventional landing, conventional runways. Uh, and then there's the F-35 Bravo variant, which is for the Marine Corps. And that is the uh, short takeoff uh, vertical landing variant. Uh, so the big fan to replace the, the, the Marine Corps Harrier. Uh, and then there's the F-35C, which is the Navy variant, the carrier variant, uh, has a little bit bigger wingspan, uh, reinforced um, uh, landing gear and a resting, or a resting hook uh, to land on an aircraft carrier. Okay, so let's, let's go through each of the var variants, um, <clears throat> Marine, Navy, and Air Force, and some of the challenges each of them face and uh, why these challenges should be of concern to taxpayers who obviously have to foot the bill. And let's talk about the actual costs for some of these things, if, if you have them, um, and uh, why some of our friends who are, who are defense hawks, you know, conservatives, um, should hold a different position than they probably do in terms of the F-35 and its capabilities. Okay. Uh, well, there's a couple questions yeah. involved in that one. So. The, with the, the variants and the, the, the issue with having the different variants for the same aircraft is the, the characteristics needed for the different missions uh, or the, for a specific mission, an aircraft needs to have very specific characteristics. So, and these are very different for the different missions. So, the, so a fighter airplane needs to be very agile, 
it should be it should be kind of small to be a hard target to see, and uh, and and relatively lightweight. And but then for an aircraft that that is going to be suitable for a close air support mission, it needs different characteristics. It doesn't need to fly nearly as fast as a fighter plane. Uh, it needs to be very survivable against ground attack. Uh, it needs to be very heavily armed. Uh, ideally, you want a very large cannon on it. Uh, and, and then for a deep strike bomber, it needs to have, be able to carry a, you know, carry a big bomb payload, uh, generally a little bigger, but they, they all have different characteristics, but when you try to make the compromises necessary to make an aircraft multi-role, multi, multi role, you have to trim off some of, the, uh, some of the performance parameters for the different missions. So it ends up uh, doing some things okay and for, the, for the fighter mission, some things okay for the, for the close air support mission, but it doesn't do any of them very well. So in that sense, it's not a very good investment. Plus, when you try to cram all these different characteristics in one aircraft, that ups the cost for each individual plane. So each of the, each of the uh, F-35s, A, B, and C variants are, are going to replace, allegedly, other aircraft from the different branches. Can we talk about what they're replacing and the cost-benefit analysis between what, they, what it will cost per plane versus what it's replacing? and the viability of the mission it's trying to seek. Sure. Uh, like, I know you guys are big fans of the A-10, as an example. We, we are big fans of the A-10, and we're, and we're big fans of the A-10 for uh, a, couple of, a couple of big reasons. First and foremost is the A-10 was designed specifically to do one mission and do one mission very well, and that's obviously the, the close air support mission. And it was designed, and it started at the right spot. When, when the Air Force realized that it needed to build a specific fixed-wing close air support aircraft, it was given to a team who, then, who didn't, didn't start with ideas about what kind of technology they wanted to include in it, like the, a wish list of te technology. They said, hey, let's figure out what this plane really needs to do, and let's talk to people who are experts in mm -hmm. this mission and get their input. What, what do they want to see in, in an aircraft to fill this role? So it started with the mission, and it started with actual combat capabilities and combat experience. And then they, they took that information, and then they used technology available to design around, based on, based on those ideas, to come up with a plane ideally suited for that one mission. And they also added a bunch of... Uh, when they, when they source it out to industry, they said, we, we need a plane that, that can do this, has to be survivable, it has to have a big cannon, uh, but we also, it has to come in at under $3 million a, per copy. And you now $3 million doesn't seem, it, it definitely doesn't seem like a lot now, but it, even in the mid-1970s when, uh, when this was, or early 1970s when this was built, that still wasn't a, a lot of money uh, for, other, for other programs. Yeah. And so it's kind of hard to, to say exactly what a new A-10 would cost now mm -hmm. if they could even build one, uh, but I think it's pretty safe to say that a new A-10 would be a whole lot less expensive than a brand new F-35, which, depending on its variant, is anywhere from between well, about $85 million per copy mm -hmm. up to $120 million a copy for the Navy variant right now. Uh, for the Navy, what, what would the F-35 replace? Uh, the F-35 is supposed to replace the, the F-18, 
uh, for sure. Uh, but with some of its electronic capabilities, probably also talking about uh, eventually some of the, the electronic warfare uh, aircraft, like the EA uh, Growlers and that kind of stuff. Uh, it's the it's a fifth generation aircraft. That's what that they correct? say. I don't, I'm not a big fan of that term uh, because it kind of denotes some kind of a linearity uh, mm-hmm. of aircraft design, and and uh, but that's that's generally what it's called. So would an F-18 be considered a fourth generation aircraft? Yes. Um, in, in your best estimate, if you're a fighter pilot, or if you I know you've spoken to fighter pilots because mm-hmm. you guys had that whole um, A-10 briefing you guys did about two years ago. Yep, which was excellent. Um, if you speak to Navy flyers, what are their thoughts on the F-18 versus the F-35 in terms of the mission they, they need to accomplish? Uh, well, see, the, the, the challenge is right now we're not actually getting the, the F-35 pilots seem to be kind of sequestered. So oh. <laughs> it's actually very difficult to talk to F-35 okay. pilots. Now, I've talked to a couple of F-18 pilots. And, and even they're having a hard time talking to their buddies who are flying the F-35s. They said they're the F-35 test pilots. Uh, those guys are, are a little cagey right now uh, and reluctant to, to speak about it. Um, but it's we, we have pretty good ideas that the... F thirty five is not going to be nearly as uh, is not going to be as maneuverable as mm-hmm. let's say the F eighteen. Uh, we definitely know it's not as maneuverable as the F sixteen, uh, as was shown by the the That's leaked right. test report uh, out of uh, Edwards Air Force Base uh, the early part of last year. So, uh, and the but one of the, one of the the biggest issues with uh, with the F thirty five, particularly at this point, is. Because it's it's such a complicated machine. There's so they try to cram so many different components into it, and it's such a complicated machine that they're having a hard time keeping it flight worthy. And so that is a big impact on the pilots because to be a good pilot, you need to have a lot of time flying the actual aircraft in order to get a real feel for the feel for the aircraft and gain the experience that you really need to be a solid experienced pilot. Um, I know you're not fond of the fifth generation or the concept of generations of aircraft, but um, one of your take is if we're moving away from manned aircraft, as perhaps the sixth generation, um, will, will in the very near future all the F-35s eventually, be, you think, be replaced anyways by the next generation of aircraft? What's, what's the various branches thinking about the next generation? I, I haven't you heard know? too much about that, but uh, you know they're, they're talking about the, the F-35 program lasting for another, you know, 56 years. Uh, mm-hmm. So that takes us out uh, to, you know, the 2060s, 2070s. So, so that kind of stuff is, is mm-hmm. definitely, you know, in the, in the future. And so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see which, which direction those things go. Um, I know there's, there's a lot of interest in unmanned, unmanned aircraft, and it's it's very appealing uh, in certain sectors because hey, if we can have a uh, have a platform up there that doesn't put a pilot's life in danger, then that's then there is there is a lot of appeal to that. As of right now, I mean, we'll see how, how technology develops. There are definite limitations mm-hmm. to man versus unmanned, uh, and, and particularly as someone who who has been the guy on the ground. Uh, in close proximity to ordnance drop from aircraft, uh, I like being able to talk to the pilot who's actually flying up above me, who's looking down on the ground, who can spot my position uh, before he drops uh, before he drops some ordnance close by. 
So presently, with a multitude of challenges, technologically speaking, the F-35 faces would probably be double that for an unmanned uh, 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 fleet um, if, if eventually they're replaced. But I, I assume that down the road the technology will improve. But speaking of down the road, mm -hmm. um, if you were, I want to say king for the day because we're a constitutional republic, we don't have kings, although I wonder sometimes, <laughs> um, and you, could, you had a magic wand and you could make reforms to the F-35 or ground them and stop developing them and replace them with something else. I mean, what would you? What would your recommendation be to Hask and Sask? So as, as of right now, because this is coming up this year, is that the, the Joint Program Office is really pushing for a, for a block by 465 aircraft <coughs> that they want uh, and and based on, on some of their internal documents that we've seen, they're looking for that vote in the September time frame uh, for Congress to authorize a block buy. Hmm. And how there's a big problem in that because that, to, uh, to us, really sounds like going into f full rate production. They're not ready. That the program is definitely not ready for four A production yet. It has not met all the criteria for that. That's miles, milestone C, mm -hmm. and uh, it has not met that criteria because the the plane ha has to finish by federal law. The plane has to finish uh, um, initial operational test evaluation. The program has not even started that process yet, so that process is not expected to start until next year. Uh, so the the idea that that the program office is pushing into that before we even really know if the the plane is combat capable is very disturbing, uh, particularly to you know to a taxpayer who wants to make sure that that my my tax dollars are being spent wisely. We we are potentially going to commit ourselves to billions of dollars in production costs on something that may never actually work. And until we actually until we test it fully, we're not going to know that. Uh, do you think the, the block by idea is an attempt to preempt any efforts to stop it down the road when it's realized that we really can't go any, we shouldn't go any further? It, it definitely could be, because when if we do that right now, it, it's it's a little difficult to, to get a, a clear picture on a day-to-day -day basis of how many F-35s we have, but it's somewhere uh, between about 150 and 200 right now that we actually have in the in the inventory, and to to add another nearly or to add another 465 onto it, that's a big commitment, uh, both in terms of finances and infrastructure and, and everything like that. And at that point, you're so far down the road on it that you're really kind of stuck with the whole mm -hmm. with the whole thing. And so, yeah, it could it it's it's it seems to me like it's a it's a way to kind of. Uh, What's the, what's the right way to put that? Uh, to kind of make it a, a fait accompli mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, by committing to a block buy. And even that, even that move uh, to, to do a block buy versus a multi-year procurement uh, is a little bit of a sneaky move because there's mm -hmm. a lot less regulations involved uh, for a block buy than there is for a multi-year uh, acquisition plan. Wow. Okay. So uh, obviously you're opposed to block buy. Yes, very uh, much so. You know, everybody everybody <laughs> should be really yeah, opposed to it. Um, magic wand. What would you then do? I, I am personally not a big fan of the of 
the, the, the multi-role platform. I, I vastly prefer, and this goes back to my, my background as a John Boyd military reformer. I prefer simpler, less complicated, definitely less expensive weapons programs uh, that can be purchased in numbers to be useful. And with something like the F-35 that is so complicated and so expensive, it's almost impossible to buy to buy enough of them to be operationally effective. Plus, you add, and then you add on the fact that it, because it is so complicated that it has a very high maintenance burden. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, it, instead of talking about sorties per day, we're talking about days per sortie in the case of the F-35. Now, that's a big problem down the road in a, in a combat situation where you need to have those planes up uh, as much as possible, flying, you know, flying with a high sortie rate particularly in its ground attack role, because mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you need to have those planes up there providing cover for, for the ground forces. And if you can only get that plane up in the air about an hour and a half once every three or four days, uh, uh, and that's even being generous uh, right now, uh, then that leaves the, the guys on the ground very exposed. So I definitely prefer simpler aircraft that are that are built for a specific mission, like the A-10, like the F-16, uh, something that's that's not complicated, that works when it needs to, and that is inexpensive enough uh, both to both to buy originally and then to maintain uh, that we can we can afford enough of them to be useful for us in a future combat situation. Um. And would it be possible then to also upgrade <clears throat> those various aircraft you mentioned as the technology improves? I mean, is that pretty easy to do? Yeah, the 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 A-10, to go back to that example, the A-10 was conceived in the 1960s, in the late mm-hmm. 1960s. It was designed in the early 1970s, and if I remember correctly, it entered service in 1976. Mm-hmm. It's been upgraded many, many times mm-hmm. to the point that even today, in 2016, it's still the go-to aircraft for combatant commanders who are operating right now in Iraq and Syria. They can't get enough of the A-10. Dan, where can we find out more information about POGO and your work? Well, you can definitely come to uh, the Project and Government Oversight's uh, uh, website, pogo.org. Uh, you can find links in that to our specific little little group inside POGO, the Strauss Military Reform Project. Uh, our analysis on the, the latest DOT&E uh, annual report on the F-35 uh, was titled uh, Failing to Impress, uh, is, is available on our website now. Thanks, Dan.